1 Samuel chapter 17, we're picking up where we left off with our study in the life of David. The title of today's message is How to Kill a Giant. Now, there are a few things more inspiring than an old-fashioned underdog story. It's the little guys who don't have a chance to win that get us rooting for them and show us that anything is possible. One of my favorite Underdog stories is that of a prize fighter by the name of James Braddock. His story was immortalized in the big Hollywood film Cinderella Man. If you haven't seen it, it's a great film. But Braddock was a professional boxer early in his life, but after a string of losses and suffering a broken right hand, he was forced to move on from the sport of boxing. Well, with his uh, family in poverty, and this was taking place during the Great Depression, Braddock took a job as a longshoreman. And due to the injury on his right hand, uh, he had to compensate by doing his work with his left hand there on the docks, and it gradually became stronger than his right. Well, after a year away from the sport, Braddock was finally given the chance to fight again, Because of his age and his reputation for losing, he was basically seen as a stepping stone for contenders. But when he came back to the sport, he found a way to knock out anybody that came in his way. And after taking down some of the toughest fighters, James Braddock was given the chance to fight for the heavyweight title against a big bruiser named Max Bayer. He also regarded Braddock as a washed-up has-been. In fact, Braddock was handpicked by Max Bear's handlers because they thought it would be an easy win for the champ and a payday. Well, amazingly, the fight took place in 1935, and Braddock won. Uh, He got the heavyweight championship of the world. He was a 10-to-1 underdog, and it was one of the most stunning upsets even to this day in boxing history. One of the strategies in the middle of the fight that led to his victory was him switching to southpaw, or his left hand, an ability which only came about because he was forced to use his left hand on the docks. I tell you that story because it ties in so well with David. If you study the Bible for just a short time, you will discover that God loves underdogs. At critical times when God's people were on the ropes, when hope was fading and they were outmatched, God always raised up a little nobody with nothing more than faith in their heart and grit to serve God, and God would deliver. David versus Goliath is the granddaddy underdog story of all time. I love what David Jeremiah wrote about this in his book. He said, quote, The story of David and Goliath is not just a story about a boy fighting a giant. It's a metaphor for the conflict of the ages. It's the story of a battle that's raged since Satan first rebelled against God. It's the story of good versus evil. The challenge to the living God by the devil and his forces. He said it not only prefigures Christ's conflict on Calvary, but the believer's spiritual battle. Now if you grew up in the church, came through Sunday school or Bible school, you've heard this story a hundred times, and you know it. And it usually goes something like this. You are David, Goliath is the giant problem in your way, and you can slay your giant through faith. You can be an overcomer. 
And that application is fine, and it may be helpful, it may be encouraging, but ultimately, it falls short. And here's why. The reason is because it forces more of the focus on us than it does the most important person. And that's Jesus. I hate to say it, but you're not David. (laughs) I'm not David. And the epic showdown in 1 Samuel 17 is meant to be an Old Testament foreshadowing of none other than Jesus. I want to help you to see this classic story in a new way this morning. I want to connect it to Christ. Remember as Jesus rose from the grave, the Bible says in Luke 24, He walked with two of the disciples along the Emmaus Road, and the Bible says He gave them the greatest lesson of all time in the Scriptures, Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, He interpreted to them all the Scriptures, the the things concerning Himself. I often fancy that as Jesus and the disciples walked along, He interpreted the Old Testament through the lens of His coming, His death, His resurrection. And one story that He had to touch on is 1 Samuel 17, David versus Goliath. Only when you understand this as a picture of Christ can you truly see it in all of its glory. Then you can become an overcomer as 1 John 5, 4 says. Then you can be more than an overcomer as Romans 8, 37 says about the believer. So... As we begin in our text here today, I want you to see, number one, a vicious challenger to God. Number one, a vicious challenger to God. Now, let me set this up. The Israelites have been in conflict with a rival nation, the Philistines. They have also been a thorn in Israel's side since, well, the days of Joshua, when they crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. The ongoing war between Israel and the Philistines has reached a stalemate now, And the two armies are encamped on opposite mountain peaks waiting for the other side to blink first. A valley separates them. And then out of the valley marches a giant, a man named Goliath, who challenges Israel to a winner-take-all contest. Notice what the Bible says, verse 7. Or excuse me, verse 4 in our text. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he held a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Now, as we look at this description of Goliath, what I'm going to submit to you here this morning is that he is a picture of our enemy who is Satan. Goliath is a type of the devil. You say, well, how so, preacher? Well, I thought you'd never ask. First, I want you to look at his size. His size. Now, we read there in verse 4 about that. And to get a picture of how tall Goliath was, consider this. A regulation basketball goal stands at 10 feet. If you translate this measurement of Goliath, he would be 9 feet 6 inches tall to today's measurement. His head would just have been a few inches below a basketball rim. Now, in recent years, the tallest player in the NBA has been Yao Ming. He measured at 7 foot 6. I imagine 9 foot 6, Goliath could have looked down upon him and bullied him around. We also read here that the giant's coat of armor 
came in at a whopping 200 pounds and the head of his spear, 20 pounds. In fact, I would submit to you, they probably had to have the second biggest guy in the Philistine army just to haul all of Goliath's equipment around. But did you notice the repetition of the number six in Goliath's measurements? He was six cubits and a span high. He had six pieces of armor with him. And the spear weighed 600 shekels. What does that make? Six, six, six. And if you know your Bible, uh, that's the number for the devil. The number for Satan. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 13 and verse 15, it tells us that 666 is the number of the mark of the beast, which is a picture of who? Our enemy Satan, the Antichrist. So notice his size, but then notice his strength. His strength, verse 5 through 7, speaks about that. Goliath was not just a mountain of a man, but he had a reputation that gave him a notorious status. Who was Goliath? Where was he from? Well, you have to do a little bit of digging here in the Old Testament, but the Bible gives us the picture. The Bible says that he was from a place named Gath. 400 years earlier from this moment, when Joshua entered into the Promised Land and his forces came in to claim that land, the Lord told him, I want you to go in and wipe out all of the members of the house of Anak. But some of them escaped. In fact, Joshua 11 Verses 21 and 22 tells us that that job was not finished. All the house of Anak wasn't eradicated. And that means that's where Goliath came from. That means that Goliath was the result of Israel's unpaid bills from generations ago. And what a picture that is to you and me when there's sin in our lives and we tolerate it and we let it live and we make excuses for it and we give it a place to hide in our lives and we don't declare war against it. It'll hang around and it'll linger and it'll come back to bite us. And the second time around, it'll be a giant in our life if we don't do it the first time. So apparently, Gath bred giants like Yosemite grows sequoias. I mean... These were big corn-fed boys coming out of that land. Perhaps when Saul saw Goliath coming down to battle, maybe he mumbled to one of his men, you know, my grandpa fought his grandpa, and my dad fought his dad, and here we are again fighting the same war. Well, here's what I want to suggest to you. Just as Goliath represented an ancient enemy that was stronger than Israel, Satan is our adversary from time immemorial, right? And Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, 12, that unless we are arrayed in the armor of God, we cannot stand up to that enemy. Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Friend, you and I in our flesh are no match for the satanic enemy. Don't think that if you give the devil an inch, oh friend... He'll take over your life. He'll demand a mile. And in our flesh, we're no match for Him. He's come to steal your joy. He's come to kill your peace. He's come to take away your blessings. And in fact, Hebrews 2.15 says that for many years before Christ, that we were held as slaves to Satan because he had a tool over which us, over humanity called death. And we lived in subjugation to this greater enemy, and the power of death that he wielded. So he's a vicious challenger to God. He's a picture of Satan. Notice his size, his strength, but then I also want you to see his shout. His shout, verse 8. 
Read with me. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. My, my. So we see his shout, his strength. His size, look at what verse 16 says, if you drop down there. And 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. How annoying would that have been, 40 days of listening to this blasphemer call out the people of God and make them quake in their sandals. Goliath wasn't just a big hairy giant, he was a braggadocious loudmouth. In fact, verse 16 says that he defied the ranks of Israel twice every day for 40 days. Friend, if that's not a picture of the enemy, I don't know what is. Satan does the same thing in our lives, doesn't he? He's an accuser. He's a liar. He's a big loud mouth in your life. When you wake up in the morning, he's all over your case. He's uh, on you when you go to bed. Friend, he's just like Goliath, shouting challenges and defying the authority of God. Did you notice that number 40, by the way, in verse 16? That's important. Because 40 is the number of testing in the Bible. Just like 6 is the number of man and 6 repeated three times is a picture of Satan. But 40 is the number of testing. And that's important. We see this pattern all through the Scripture. Every time the number 40 is mentioned... It was always a period of testing involved. Noah's ark was tested by the flood for 40 days of rain. The nation of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was tested by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days, according to Matthew chapter 4. So once again, we see here Goliath, a picture of the devil. He's testing the people of God for 40 days. And friend, we all know what that's about. The devil is uh, 24-7, 365. You think when you get saved, your problems are solved. But friend, when you come to Christ, uh, there's a big crosshair that he puts on your back because now you're going to have struggles and problems that you never had before because now through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to say no to sin and no to Satan. And he's mad because he's lost one and he's out for blood. He shouts at us. The first thought of the morning and the last worry of the night. Doesn't Satan do that to you? He gets you to doubt the promises of God, doubt the strength of God, doubt the goodness of God, and left unchecked, he will dominate your thought life and he will steal your peace. But just as Goliath shouted at Israel, listen to what 1 Peter 5 and 8 says, that Satan roars at us like a hungry lion, doesn't he? Just as Goliath played Mind games with Saul's ranks. The Bible says in Revelation 12 and verse 10 that Satan is an accuser of the brethren. He likes to bring up your past, doesn't he? And when Satan brings up your past, you remind him of his future. That he's been defeated. He's been disarmed. He's been defamed by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. So Israel had a giant problem that nobody was willing to confront. 
And likewise, we have an enemy who at one point held sway over our lives. We lived in fear of the shadow of death. We were a slave to this giant, this enemy in our life, and there was no way we could defeat him in our own power and strength. So we see, number one, a vicious challenger to God. Then I want you to see, number two, as David enters the picture, a vicarious champion for God. A vicarious champion for God. Let's read verse 20 and following. The Bible says, And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. And so the battle lines are drawn. And this is a critical moment where we see now the underdog, the shepherd boy, the anointed king, the poet warrior, he steps now into the spotlight. If Goliath typified Satan, who do you think David is a picture of? He's a picture of Jesus Christ, our vicarious champion who took the battle, stood in our place, and fought the war that we could not. How does he point to Christ? Let me show you some ways. He was a soul champion. A soul champion. Look at what verse 32 says. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So the wager from Goliath went like this. You pick your best man to stand toe-to-toe with me, and whoever wins the contest will win the larger battle. And so it was one man to fight on behalf of them all, and this means that David was Israel's vicarious champion, meaning that he stood in the place of all of God's people. And friend, here's the picture. Just as David stood for Israel that day, the Lord Jesus went to a bloody cross called Calvary as our vicarious stand-in, our sacrifice. Christ took the battle, the cosmic conflict. He took our place. He was the only one qualified to represent holy God and sinful man. And with one arm he grabbed hold of heaven and with the other he grabbed uh, earth and he brought the two together. Fallen man and holy God. And 1 Timothy 2, 5 says that there is one God and there is one mediator between man and God. The man, Christ Jesus. No other way. He was a soul champion. Just as David was the soul fighter for Israel. Then he was also a sent champion. A sent champion. Notice what verses 17 and 18 tell us. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So, David, the only reason that he arrived on the battlefield that day is because he was running an errand. Now, think about this. The one who's anointed to be the next king of Israel, and here he is delivering bread and cheese. That sounds like pizza to me. David is turned into a a delivery boy, even though he's the next in line to rule. 
He's sent by Jesse, his father, with the chore of taking bread and cheese to his brothers. In other words, David went even though he'd already been given the promise of king. And yet he came as how? A humble servant. Doesn't that sound like somebody you know, friend? In John 6, we read of what Jesus said of himself, that he was sent by the Father, and he told those uh, waiting there for a meal, after he multiplied the fishes and the loaves, he said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. So just as David was sent by the Father to feed his brothers, Jesus Christ was sent by the Heavenly Father to come and feed our souls. And He didn't come as a ruler. He came as a humble servant, even though He could wear the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Mark 10 and verse 45, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came not to... Be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Let me just stop right there and say there may be somebody in here today who has a problem with serving. And it's not about how great you are, it's about how great he is. Jesus was the greatest of all time. And yet he was able to stoop and wash feet. He was able to heal. He was able to serve. Friend, if you've got a problem with serving in the church today, do a heart check and realize that you're not greater than him. Nobody's greater than the master. And if he came to serve, then I can pick up a talon basin and I can serve. A sent champion, a soul champion, but then notice this, he was a scorned champion. Notice what verse 28 says. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Oh, man, he's really digging it in, David. Uh, David, who's, who's watching the sheep while you're gone? Aren't you supposed to be at home tending dad's flock? Why are you, what are you doing here? I know your presumption and the evil in your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And then if you drop down to another verse here in verse 33, look at what it says. And Saul said to David, You're not able to fight against the Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. David was a scorned champion. When he arrived at Israel's camp, he was not welcomed with open arms. Who does that sound like to you? Instead, David was mocked and rejected by his brothers for even thinking that he could enter the fight with Goliath. Even Saul doubted that David was good enough for the job. And yet, when Jesus came preaching and healing, when Jesus came declaring the gospel of, of, of grace, was he welcomed with open arms? No, he was scorned. He was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. John 1.11 says that Jesus came into his own, and his own received him not. A scorn champion, a scent champion, a soul champion. Then I want you to see a surprising champion. Surprising champion. Drop down to verse 48. We'll fast forward in our story. But I want you to see this quickly. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He didn't flee. He ran to the fight. Amen? And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face 
to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut his head off with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. I want you to see here a surprising champion. Now, I love the way that Bible commentator Malcolm Gladwell gives some additional insight here. Look at what he writes. He says, quote, ancient armies had three kinds of warriors, cavalry, infantry, and archers or slingers. Slinging took an extraordinary amount of skill and practice. In experienced hands, he said, the sling was a devastating weapon. In the Old Testament book of Judges, slingers were often described as accurate within a hair's breadth. An efficient slinger could kill or seriously injure a target up to 200 feet away. Imagine standing in front of a major league baseball pitcher as he aims the baseball at your head. I've actually seen him do that in games before. But that was what facing a slinger was like. Only what was being thrown was a stone, not a ball of cork and leather. Recently, ballistic experts with the Israeli Defense Forces did a series of calculations showing that a typical size stone hurled by an expert slinger at a distance of 100 feet would have hit Goliath's head with a velocity of 76 miles an hour. You don't walk away from that. Now notice here, the Bible says that David did not defeat Goliath the conventional way because, why? Physically, he was weaker. He was smaller. And yet he used an unorthodox weapon, a sling and a stone. So rather than engaging in hand-to-hand combat with the giant, David uses his wisdom and he turns his weakness into an advantage. If you have a bigger enemy, if you have a stronger enemy, don't get close to him. Try and kill him from far away. And so by taking down Goliath from a distance, what he does is he levels the playing field and he catches the enemy by surprise. Notice, don't miss this, at the end of that little passage where we read that after the giant fell, David had no sword in his hand, so what did he do? He ran over to the giant, put his foot on him, pulled out the sword from his sheath, and used Goliath's sword to cut the head off of his enemy. That's a lot like what Christ did with his death and resurrection. You know, God never fights a battle the way that we would fight a battle. You get the Joint Chiefs of Staff together to present a battle plan, and then you hear God's battle plan, they never add up. God says, I want the runt. I want the shepherd boy. I want the one that nobody thinks has a chance to fight the battle. God turned to Gideon, and he said, Gideon, your army's too big. Let's winnow it down to just 300 because I'm going to put you in a position where the only way that there's going to be victory is if I do it through you. Notice what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God always works the opposite way that we would expect. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring nothing to things that are, so that no man might boast in the presence of God. David's victory is a picture of what Christ did on the cross. Jesus did not wage war against Satan in the conventional way, did he? 
Jesus' mission was to go to the cross and die as an atoning sacrifice. Friend, if your strategy is to defeat your enemy, how do you beat your enemy by dying? That's not a good plan for winning. But God uses what is weak, what is despised, and what sounds foolish to the ears of men, turns it around through His power, turns defeat into victory. And friend, that's what happened when Jesus Christ spread Himself apart on that cross, suspended between earth and heaven. He used the weapon of the enemy and turned it and used it against Satan to defeat him. He took death. And by death, He created forgiveness and atonement and salvation. And through death, He came out on the other side victorious. He took the devil's great weapon, which was death, and He flipped it. And three days later, He walked out of that tomb in power and glory. He took the weapon of the enemy and used it against Him. And friend, that is what God intends us to see through this text. Jesus turned weakness into victory. Life from death. And just like David, Jesus stunned the world with the greatest comeback of all time against an undefeated enemy. The statistics were uh, not in His favor. Ten out of ten die until the exception, until the forerunner, until the Son of God entered into the jaws of death and wrenched death, hell, and the keys of Hades from the enemy and walked out the other side. And now today, through His power and through His victory, we, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, can taunt death and say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Is that all you got, Satan? My Jesus defeated you. He took the worst that you could throw at Him, and He's still alive. He's still victorious. He's still King of kings and Lord of lords. He took my place and defeated my giant. Just like David who used the enemy's sword to lop off Goliath's head, Jesus took Satan's greatest weapon in his arsenal, death, and he used it as the way of salvation. Only God. We see a vicious challenger to God. We see number two, a vicarious champion for God. And then number three, I want you to see a victorious courage from God. A victorious courage from God. So where are we in this story? If we're to be true to ourselves and true to the text, we must admit that we're not David. We're not strong. We're not mighty. We're not fearless. If we're anybody in this story, we are faithless and scattered Israel. We're desperately needing a champion to fight for us, to deliver us from a stronger enemy. And what David was for Israel, Jesus is for us. And not only did Jesus win the war against sin and Satan, but He gave us an example to follow. So how many of you know that even though Jesus won the war a long time ago, we still have our battles against our giants every day? In fact, there's going to be a big, mean, hairy one waiting for you tomorrow morning, Monday, when you wake up. Hate to be the bearer of bad news. But David was confident because, listen, his faith was in the Lord. The difference for you and I is we don't fight for victory, but we fight from victory. We fight from the victory that Christ has already secured for us. And so the way I want to close this is I want to give you some tremendous applications for how we kill a giant. Understanding that it's not in us. We have a part to play, yes, 
But where does the victory come from? It comes from the Lord. How do we do that? How do we have that victorious courage from God? Well, look at this. Reflect on God's past victories. Reflect on God's past victories. Look at what David did. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I called him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And then notice uh, what the next verses say. Verse 36 and verse 37, Your servant has struck down both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. How do you like the holy boldness of David? For he has defied the armies of the living God. Aren't any of you guys going to do anything about this bragging, this prideful arrogance? David was, there was fighting, David. He was stirred up. He may have not been the biggest dog in the fight, but there was a dog inside of him. And David said, look, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear would deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to you, David, go, and the Lord be with you. You see, Saul was too afraid to do it. When we face a giant, we reflect on God's past victories. You know, oftentimes when we face a giant in our lives, we forget what we ought to remember and remember what we ought to forget. We remember our past defeats and we forget so often the victories that God has given us time and time again. David was confident in the Lord because he had been through the test and now he had something called a testimony. Amen? And when facing a giant... It's always good to take a stroll down memory lane and recall the faithfulness of God in your life. Yes, it may be big and bad and hairy and ugly in your life. Your giant may be financial. But you think back to all the times that God met your need. All the time there was food on your table. Every time there was gas in the car. Each time that you had clothes to wear. And God met your need time and time again. And if God did it back then, He'll do it again for you in the future. Your giant may be medical. You could be facing something today that you've never faced before, but you remember how many times God healed your body. How God brought you through COVID and God brought you through cancer and God brought you through whatever sickness you were facing. And by the way, He reminds you, I'll not leave you nor forsake you. In other words, I didn't bring you this far to abandon you and forget about you. I'm going to guide you through. Your giant may be an addiction. It may be a besetting sin today. But think back, praise God, to all the times you should have died. All the times God could have took your life. All the times you were given grace. And God saved you and God spared you for that. And He's given you another chance to serve Him. And friend, He can still break the chains of addiction today. If he can guide a little stone a hundred yards across the battlefield into the head of an ugly giant, he can break the chains of whatever addiction you are fighting today. You already have what you need equipped for battle in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Adrian Rogers said. He said, quote, Before David fought Goliath, he fought a lion and a bear. Because he won those smaller victories, he knew God prepared him for a bigger victory. Before Jesus met and defeated Satan at Calvary, Christ met and defeated him in the wilderness. Jesus and David show us the principle of progression. God prepares us in small ways for the big days. They also show us that God tests and trains us in private, the pasture in the wilderness, 
to be victorious in public. Amen? So when the giant starts wagging his tongue at you, telling you what you can and can't do, you remind him of what God has already done. So we see here too, reflect on God's past victories, rely then on God's power. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail and David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. And so David put them off. Isn't it interesting that Saul tried to get David to fit into his man-size armor. In other words, Saul came to David and he said, Now David, if you're going to fight the giant, here's how you should do it. And he tried to give David tips on how to kill the giant, even though he'd never done it and he wasn't bold enough to go out and try it himself. Friend, there's a lot of talking heads in the world and you're going to talk to them and tell them about what's going on in your life and they're going to tell you, they're going to give you worldly advice on how they think you should do it. But friend, we don't wage war the way the world wages war, do we? See, the armor didn't fit David when he went into battle so he went down to the brook and he got five smooth stones. Five, by the way, the number of grace. He didn't fight this battle the way that Worldly wisdom would have taught him. And what this tells us is that the giant that we might face is not going to be defeated in the power of our flesh or in man's strategies or in our strength. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God in the pulling down of strongholds. Maybe we've been listening too much to Dr. Phil. Maybe we've been reading the wrong books and listening to the wrong political commentators who want to tell us the way that they think things should go, but they don't have this, and they don't know the Word of God. They're not people of prayer. They don't have the Spirit of God residing within them. So why would we listen to the ways of the world to tell us how to fight our battles, how to raise our children, how to vote, how to run our church, how to glorify God, how to do basic things in the world? I'm telling you, the world doesn't have the answer. Many of you know that. You've been there, done that, tried, the, tried it, got the t-shirt, and you realize there's nothing out there in the world. I tried to put on the armor, and it didn't fit. Friend, you're not going to defeat Satan in your strength. Your giant isn't coming down with positive thinking. You're not overcoming with education or with self-help or with medication or with meditation, or with yoga, or assenting to a quote-unquote higher power. We waste a lot of time and energy trying to fight our battles in the ways of the world, but David said, I'm going forward to fight this in the power of the name of my God. Some men trust horses and others chariots, but I will trust in the name of the Lord my God. Amen? I want you to see this. Last is I close. Rely on God's power and then refocus on God's perspective. And then David said to the Philistine, verse 45, You came to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts. Wow, you talk about talking smack. I ought to pick up some of those lines when we're playing basketball. The earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Hey, when you're confident, when you're bold in the Lord, you don't have to brag, do you? Verse 47, And all the assembly that they may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword or the spear, and for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give it into your hand. Now you know why we sang that song earlier today. Everybody in the camp of Israel cowered in fear over Goliath, but David gives a counter-perspective. David had a God-focused vision, and the giant wasn't so big when he compared him to Almighty God. I'm talking about the God who called galaxies into existence. I'm talking about the God who knows every star by name, who put the planets in their orbits and keeps the sun, moon, and spinning at night. The God who commanded legions of angels. The God who split the Red Sea. The God who already defeated Pharaoh and his mighty army. The God who crumbled the walls of Jericho. And the God who rose after three days Friend, when you take a God perspective on your giant, it doesn't look as big as you thought it was. Max Cato said this, quote, David never inquired about Goliath's skill, strength, or IQ. David never asked about the weight of Goliath's spear or the size of his shoe. David gives little thought to the intimidating features of the Diplodocus on the hill. But he gives much thought to God. In fact, his God thoughts outnumber Goliath's thoughts nine to two. Do you ponder God's grace four times more than you do your guilt? Is your mental file of hope four times as thick as your mental file of dread? Are you four times as likely to describe the strength of God as you are the demands of the day? It's fine to talk to God about your giants, but what we might need to do is talk to our giants about God. Preach the goodness of God to your problem. Prophesy the promises of God in your life. Proclaim the victory of the cross over those things. Focus on your giants and you stumble. But if you focus on God, your giants tumble. I'm finished with this. In his book, Believing Belong, the longtime pastor and counselor Bruce Larson described... Countless people who came into his office battling giants of all shapes and sizes. Drug and alcohol addiction, grief, divorce, cancer, depression. And Larson discovered an interesting way to help them get a God-shaped perspective on what they were facing. He said this, For many years I worked in New York City and often counseled at my office any number of people who are wrestling with giant-sized problems. Often I would suggest they walk with me from my office down to the RCA building on 5th Avenue. In the entrance of that building is a gigantic statue of Atlas, which is pictured there. A perfectly proportioned man who with all his muscles straining is holding the world upon his shoulders. There he is. The most powerfully built man in the world. And he can barely stand up under the burden. I would turn to my patient and say, that's one way to live your life. You can try carrying the world on your shoulders. 
But walk across the street, I want you to see something else. He said, on the other side of Fifth Avenue in St. Patrick's Cathedral, there behind the altar is a statue of Jesus as a boy. Perhaps eight or nine years old. And with no effort, there he is holding in his hand the whole world. And my point is illustrated graphically. We have a choice. We can carry the world on our shoulders or we can say, Lord, I give up. The battle is yours. You take it. I give you my world. The first step to overcoming any giant is to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Give Him your problems. Give Him your past. Give Him your brokenness. Give Him your hopeless situation. Give Him your disease. Give Him your sin. Give Him your giant. And He will give you victory. Amen.